I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. For all our regular listeners, great to have you back for the second part of our two-part special on the war in Ukraine. And for those tuning in for the first time, this is the podcast which looks at the history of today's world to try and make sense of what's going on. In last week's episode, we looked at Ukraine's ambiguous history of independence from the end of the Soviet Union to Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, the real beginning of this war now raging across the country. In this week's episode, we're going to look at what's happened since then and what that means for the future. And the question we're going to try to to ask today is, why even after Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, has it been so difficult for the United States and the European Union to protect Ukraine's independence? With cheering crowds greeting him, Russian President Vladimir Putin made his first visit since Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine. The future of Ukraine must be decided by the people of Ukraine. That means Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity must be respected, and international law must be upheld. Macron's bringing the message that addressing Putin's security concerns can go hand in hand with defending Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. European Union executives have signaled their support for Ukraine to join the bloc in light of Russia's invasion. I would get him into a room, I'd get Zelensky into a room, then I'd bring them together and I'd have the deal worked out. In the snow in western Ukraine, American soldiers training with Ukrainian troops, members of Florida's National Guard showing them the ropes with US-supplied weapons. If you ask the Ukraines, they are asking us for ammunition now. Artillery now. Uh, from, from the Danish side, we, we decided to donate our entire artillery. So, Helen, first things first, let's recap where we got to in the last episode. It's 2014 and the revolution in Ukraine. The Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, has fled the country after losing control in Kiev, where there have been mass protests for months over his decision to pull out of an EU association agreement the year before under a lot of pressure from Vladimir Putin. Uh, the story of his departure is actually really quite interesting. Originally, he'd been forced into a conflict 
compromise with Parliament to curtail his powers, something Russia was actually furious with. And then Parliament passes a law to strip the police of its ability to sort of crack down on these protests that have been quite brutal. Yanukovych thinks this means he's not safe, so he tries to flee to the east of the country. Parliament then declares he's no longer president and puts someone else in his place, one of the leaders of the Maidan protesters, who vows to sign the EU agreement. At this point that Putin loses patience, when Yanukovych tries to flee to Crimea to re-establish a base there, Putin actually stops him and redirects his helicopter to Russia, finally having enough. And this is the start of the war when Russian soldiers take Crimea with, we have to say, very little, if not any, Ukrainian military resistance. So I guess the question at this point is, what is the West doing? What are we doing in response? At the beginning, looking back at this, Helen, it seems mostly about sanctions and sanctions that don't have a lot of bite compared to the ones that we have today. So they don't hit uh, Russia's energy sector, for instance. And there's nothing militarily we're doing at this point to stop Russia's actions. Yeah, I think the crucial point here is that the sanctions are not directed in any shape or form at Russia's present tense energy exports, which is the place where that in principle, that they can be hit. Mm -hmm. Neither, actually, are they directed at Russia financially in terms of Russia's central bank in the way in which that they were in February of 2022. So then, as we'll get to later, the Russia finds that it's half of its foreign exchange reserves, what's held abroad, are, are confiscated. There are some energy sanctions, but they're directed at future projects, but they're basically making it more difficult for to Western companies to invest and use their technology both for Russian liquid natural gas coming out of the Arctic and for Russian shale. But I think the important thing to bring out here is that it isn't just that the sanctions are really like ineffectual. They were never likely to change anything. Mm -hmm. It is in some sense the complete surprise, particularly in the European Union, that these events Uh, have happened. And if you think about it over the long period that we've been talking about, so go back to the 1990s, this is basically the United States, the European Union, obviously that still includes the United Kingdom, at this point responding pretty passively to a change in the territorial borders of Europe. Yeah. I mean, it's because we've never really answered this question of what Ukraine is and where it belongs. This This is the point. I mean, I think to begin with, when we rewind back to the 90s, we actually were trying to make it clear that Ukraine isn't part of the West, that it doesn't have a, a, it don't declare independence originally. That was the message from Bush and from Germany. But it has moved that way anyway. That was that was point. We, we weren't in control of this process from the beginning. So when you get to 2014, our response is ambiguous because we, we, we're pushing on the EU, but not on NATO. Absolutely. In there is a sense in which the, the European Union, I think, has been certainly on the side of the Germans and the French dragged into this association agreement. I think a significant part of that is actually down to the pipeline question that we talked about um, last week, where Ukraine has got these very old pipelines that go back to the Soviet era. They have a very difficult relationship with Russia mm-hmm. over them. That causes a number of European Union states, not least Germany, but certainly not only Germany, very considerable problems. And I think a significant part of the association agreement is a way of, if you like, taking EU money to try to modernise these right. pipelines. Yeah. But there's nothing 
in terms of the bigger geopolitical picture that anchors that association agreement in mm -hmm. anything. And this goes back to what we were talking about a lot of the time in the previous episode, is that in other cases, when it's actually fully EU membership, it goes hand in hand with NATO. Yeah. Either it comes first, NATO, mm -hmm. or it's done at the same time. Here we just have the association agreement with nothing that deals with the security side of things. And this, and then the association agreement has set in motion this sequence of events, made much worse, it must be said, by Ukraine's financial position, which we'll come back to in terms of its implications during this period for providing Ukraine with economic support. But I think it's important here to bring out, that you, Tom, that actually even when we seen the annexation of Crimea, even when war in the Donbass has broken out, even when Ukraine has actually really struggled militarily in responding to the war in um, the Donbass, particularly in the autumn of, of 2014, it's still not entirely clear how deep the commitment of European Union and the United States is to protecting Ukraine, because we see two different things going on. On the one hand, from 2015, the US, the UK and Canada organise this essentially international coalition to train the Ukrainian army. Mm -hmm. And that does involve actually soldiers from NATO countries going into Ukraine to train these soldiers. I think there are three different bases in western part of Ukraine. And the Obama administration is behind that in quite mm -hmm. a significant respect. Yet on the other hand, if you look at what Obama was willing to do in terms of pushing defensive military aid for mm -hmm. Ukraine, actually sending weapons, he's not willing to do that. Very, very limited. Yeah. I mean, when you look back at this period, 2014, I'm particularly struck by Russia's strength and Ukraine's strategic weakness, military weakness, geopolitical weakness. It's lack of any real security partner coverage that's going to be meaningful. You know, it is getting beaten on the battlefield. That is, I think, one of the key lessons uh, from this period. So you've had the revolution, you've had this period where they don't have a settled government in place. And this is the period where Putin pushes in or encourages the forces in the Donbass and takes Crimea. And then you get Poroshenko who comes to power. And to begin with, he is forced right on the back foot and he suffers a terrible defeat. I think it's in September of uh, 2014, the autumn of 2014, as you were, as you were saying, which is the which starts the Minsk protest. That's how to understand the Minsk pro process. Putin's winning at this point. Um, and this, these are the first set of agreements. Putin is trying to federalize Ukraine to give the breakaway regions effectively kind of veto powers over Kiev's ability to shift Ukraine west and to make these association agreements with, uh, with the EU. And then NATO has already been dropped uh, as an idea at this point, or it had been dropped. So this is Putin's idea. And Minsk is really confirms this, it looks like Ukraine is having to accept this because of its military weakness. And that doesn't really change even with Min Minsk 2, which happens in February 2015. I, there's an interesting um, debate between the Ukrainians and the Russians about Minsk 2. What, what is essentially the conflict essentially seems to be that Putin has says that there'll be elections in the eastern breakaway regions 
and that Ukraine can re-establish control over its own border with Russia. But it can only re-establish control of its own border after the election takes place. In other words, Russia will oversee the elections that take place to ensure the victory, to, to ensure that the results are what it wants in the East. So to ensure it gets the result it wants. And obviously Kiev is unhappy with this, but at the start it's too weak to uh, to be able to negotiate anything stronger. And this is the negotiations overseen by France and Germany without US and UK presence. So again, I think that gives you an indication of Europe's quite kind of weak response and the West's weak response to this invasion. We're not escalating it. You know, at this point, we've also had the downing of the Malaysian Airlines. Remember that in July 2014. So you're having real tragedies that are happening and affecting Western interests, but we're still not pushing for anything beyond these pretty weak Minsk agreements. Yeah, I think the point of the Minsk agreements, isn't it, is, is to try to actually have a ceasefire mm. um, because Ukraine is in a pretty weak military mm-hmm. um, position. And then the idea is uh, that by training the Ukrainian army, that Ukraine's position will in time strengthen. Mm-hmm. And I think there's aspects of that that we that we need to come back to later because I think they play a quite important part in trying to understand like what the French and German position is in the months leading up or the, particularly actually in the weeks leading up to Russia's invasion. But if we pull back for now to 2015 and put these different pieces together, I think that what we can see is essentially a story of ongoing incoherence in the way in which the actors on the Western side, if we can call it that, because there's not much unifying to call it Western, I don't think. In this Absolutely, respect, yeah. In this, so the US, which is still President Obama at this point, the European Union, and then the French and Germans acting effectively separately from the US and the UK. So one way of looking at it would be to say, well, look, the US and the UK concentrate on the let's train the Ukrainian army, which had shown itself particularly, well, completely ineffectual mm-hmm. in, the, in, in, in what happened in Crimea. And actually quite a number of the Ukrainian soldiers defected to Russia after the annexation. And that goes back to the fact that the Ukrainian army had been created out essentially at that point of those who had been in the Soviet army in Ukraine. On the other hand, you've got the French and the Germans saying look, we want there not to be a war. We want there actually to be a peace process. And this is the political settlement, as you've mm-hmm. described it, in terms of autonomy for the breakaway republics that's going to, to bring this about. So which of these things is it? Yeah. Now, it's interesting because later, after the invasion, Angela Merkel's going to say in various interviews that Minx 2 was never serious. Yeah, It was just about buying time. Mm-hmm. And then you could look at it in terms of that, hypothesis for buying time for this training the Ukrainian army to work. But then if you look at what Obama is both doing and retrospectively saying, that doesn't really add up either because of the fact that he's not willing to send defensive military aid to And of course the Germans aren't either. No, 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 nobody's, nobody's willing. Nobody's willing to do that. And if we then turn to what Obama says about this, not now, but what he said about it at the end of his presidency in this interview with Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, which I think we've talked about in a number of episodes before, Mm -hmm. because this is where 
He discusses that the proudest moment of his foreign policy president was standing up to the blob, as he called it, in Washington about chemical weapons in Syria and the attack on the Assad regime that he pulled back from. In that interview, he makes it very clear that he's not really that bothered about Ukraine. He says, we have to be very clear about what our core interests are and what we are willing to go to war for. That's his exact words. And then he's saying that while Ukraine is a core interest for Russia, it is not for the United States. And this, I think, is the most revealing part about it. He then goes on to say, the fact is that Ukraine, which is a non-NATO country, is going to be vulnerable to military domination by Russia, no matter what we do. Yeah. So on the one hand, he's saying, well, we're going to train the Ukrainian army because it's fun. Ukraine is very vulnerable to Russian military power. On the other hand, he's saying, well, it doesn't make any difference what we do. Because exactly. Russia's going to militarily dominate Ukraine in the end. It's like it's the training of the army is almost like a political act. It's saying, look, this is the right thing to do. We will do what we can. We will help you where we can. But let, let's be serious. Ultimately, we're not going to fight for you. We're not going to go to war for you. You're too close to Russia. And, you know, going all the way back to George Bush Sr., who Obama is actually very fond of and very particularly fond of Robert Gates from, from memory, this kind of Republican realist foreign policy worldview, just thinks that Ukraine is kind of part of the Russian world. That's effectively the, the frame in which he's acting in. And you got to say that there is – it's a legitimate foreign policy that Obama is setting out there. It's saying that there are limits to where America will act in defense of democracy or or ideals. And effectively, the edge of the European Union is it. You know, we are not going into into Ukraine. We can't afford to and we're not going to fight. I'm not sure about that in this respect. It's also, I think, quite provocative to be training the Ukrainian army in Ukraine itself yeah. in that sense is and, and i'm not saying that in any way to say that that makes anything that Putin's done or says about this remotely like justifiable but I, I think it is another example of the incoherence that we've been talking about since the the beginning of uh, this because if obama really followed through on what he says was his position why was it the case then that parts of his state department as we talked about in the last episode are at the very least should we just say engaged in events yeah. In Ukraine in late 2013, uh, early 2014, around the removal um, of um, Yanukovych. Totally. There are complete contradictions running through American foreign policy. What I mean is that the, when Obama talks to Jeff Goldberg there and, and sets out that vision, that's a reasonable idea of foreign policy. It doesn't actually exist in reality. His rea- the reality is something more provocative, like you say. So which is it? And I think, but this gets back to the point about incoherence of, the, of Western foreign policy, because not only is American foreign policy incoherent, but when you add it with what Europe is doing at the time, it's even more incoherent. Absolutely. And I think that as well, we need to factor in something that changes in 2015 that in a way just reinforces the incoherence is the question of, well, what is American and European policy, European Union policy towards Russia in other parts of the world? Because in September 2015, again, that this is a moment that we've discussed in a, in a number of, of these podcasts in the course just of the last few months, Russia militarily intervenes in Syria mm-hmm. in September of 2015. It does so in support of the Assad regime and taking air action um, against ISIS. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the Americans are already, as we discussed in the Iraq episode, themselves involved in Syria in anti-ISIS yeah. uh, operations, concentrated on air strikes. And what we can see by the, I think it's really by June of 2015, is that you reach the point where the Americans and the Russians are planning joint yeah. air operations against ISIS targets in like Syria together. And then at the same time, back in Ukraine, the Americans are training the Ukrainian army against possible invasion from Russia. So now, again, as we've talked about before, events in Syria itself mean that that cooperation, American-Russian cooperation comes to an end in like September uh, or October of that year. So in the build up to the, the, the presidential election of that year. But I think you can then see if you if you look at the way in which the foreign policy aspects of that election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump played out, all the divisions about what to do about Russian power between what's going on in Europe, what's going on in Syria are very much to the fore and are going to shape then, for obvious reasons, the Trump presidency. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about Obama there, he's all, he's also doing something similar to what he's doing in Ukraine in Syria by saying, I, I have this foreign policy goal, which is to, re- Assad should go, but his actions don't match those words, just just like they don't match the words in Ukraine. It's a strange thing trying to analyse Obama. I mean, we have to do that on, a, on, a, on another episode because we've got too much to get through um, with with Ukraine. But I mean, policy for American foreign policy does begin to shift, and in a way that today looks incongruous when Trump comes in. So Trump is elected in in two thousand sixteen, takes over in January two thousand and seventeen, and initially. The change is that uh, American foreign policy becomes more hawkish and more willing to take risks, sending more equipment to Ukraine. In Ukraine, but not in Syria. I think this is the interesting thing, as we've talked about before. Trump is trying to get out of Syria and finds himself continually constrained Mm -hmm. in that respect. But on Ukraine, actually, he does agree to send these javelin anti-tank weapons in 2017. Now, we'll come to in a moment the way in which then American domestic politics gets tangled up in the Mm -hmm. Ukraine question already, I'd say, by 2019. But I I think that we can see here that there is a shift on the American side under Trump in the direction of being more supportive of Ukraine. And I think it's also true that if we bring in something which we've left out so far, which is the question of what Germany is doing in relation to the Ukraine pipeline question during this mm-hmm. period. Trump is actually a lot tougher on Germany about that than either Obama or later Trump is. So the issue here is it's in 2015. So this is after the annexation of Crimea, after the rebellions in the Donbass, that Angela Merkel agrees and the German companies that are involved in that sign the agreements for the second Nord Stream pipeline. So that's the pipeline under the Baltic Sea, the point of which has always been, from Putin's point of view, to end gas transit through Ukraine. Indeed, after he's got this agreement and an agreement with Erdogan about building a pipeline called Turk Stream under the Black Sea, he basically has Gazprom, the Russian gas company, write to the European Commission and say, you know, within X number of years, I can't entirely remember how many it is, 
there will be no transit through Ukraine, so you better build some more pipelines <laughs> as well to make sure that you're going to get enough gas supply. So he's really putting the pressure on Ukraine about the pipeline issue of basically saying, I want them eliminated on gas anyway from our energy transit system. And Trump and the Republican Congress by 2019 are the ones who then put sanctions on the companies involved in the construction of the Nord Stream 2 um, pipeline. Yeah. Now, partly they're doing that because it's in the interest of American shale companies to be able to sell liquid natural gas into the European market in the Russians of competition. But they're also doing it in around Ukraine and saying that actually Ukraine's security will be really weakened. And this is bound up with the depth of Ukraine's financial problems during this period if it loses all those transit fees right. from Russia. So there's two respects in which Trump is significantly more supportive, I think, of Ukraine, at least in the outcome of what he does, regardless of what his inner intentions are, than what the Obama administration has been. It is a bit perplexing as a non-expert on this because you think in one sense – Putin seems to be making Ukraine less important to Russia by bypassing it. I mean, he's obviously frustrated because it's a basket case and the pipes are not, haven't been uh, kept up to date and the gas has been siphoned off by the Ukrainians and all of that. Uh, but he's making it less important, but also fighting a war for it at the same time. And the West is maintaining its importance by trying to stop a new pipeline going from Russia to Germany and not wanting to fight over it. There's a, it's, it's quite hard to understand how those things all come together. Absolutely. And I, and, I, and I think the other thing that the pipeline story brings out is the way in which the European Union is divided mm. very much over this question. And it's divided, I'd say, in two, along two fault lines, if you like. You have Poland who right from the beginning of the first Nord Stream pipeline, so back in 2005, had been very hostile to it and basically said that it will undermine Ukraine's independence by this pipeline. So mm -hmm. the, I think it's, it's either the foreign minister or the defence minister at the time in Poland describes Nord Stream 1 pipeline as the equivalent of the Nazi-Soviet pact, i.e. partitioning up right. what was then the Ukrainian well, Ukraine, part of, of Poland, among, well, amongst other things. And Poland continues to be an even more ferocious critic of, of Nord Stream 2 because mm -hmm. it's actually been agreed in the wake of the events of 2014. But meanwhile, the Southern European states, which haven't got the same benefits of the first Nord Stream pipeline that Germany uh, has, they're also very unhappy about the situation because Merkel's position, as it becomes harder and harder to defend Nord Stream 2 publicly in the sense of it weakens Ukraine, being shut out of the transit system is to say, of course Ukraine can't be shut out of the transit system. But it's saying to the southern European states, you're the ones who are going to have to keep importing gas through the Ukrainian pipelines that are still quite difficult to um, uh, modernize she's ruthlessly nas nationalistic in a way isn't she yeah and she yeah and she does uh, and one of the, the, the i mean one of the things that then happens in 2019 this is after zelensky has become ukrainian president in may of 2019 there's an agreement at the end of that 
year, I think under the Normandy format, which is tied to Minsk too, in which Putin accepts that for four more years, transit will continue through Ukraine. And Merkel and Macron broker that agreement. But I think the other thing that's really significant about 19 to bring out, isn't it, is that Zelensky won that election yeah. as a, essentially, and he won it by a landslide as a non-politician, as a peace candidate. Yeah. That things are not good on the military front in um, the Donbass from Ukraine's point of view. And the pressure then in the US from those who want to support Ukraine to provide more military aid to mm-hmm. Ukraine is is growing. Trump, I think, is a bit ambivalent about it, but he's not actually going to oppose it. But then there's this moment, which I think just goes to show how absolutely entangled all these different things have become. In the, it starts in the autumn of 2019, I think, in which Trump has this phone call with Zelensky and he basically says, as a whistleblower, yeah. sort of leaked, look unless you do what I want you to do in terms of investigating Joe Biden and Hunter mm-hmm. Biden, Joe Biden's son's activities in Ukraine, I'm not giving you this 400 million of aid that the Senate is voting. Yeah. And so that, and that's what Trump gets impeached for yes. the first time. Yeah. It starts to drift and infect us politics. Well, I think it's going both ways, isn't it? Is, is that what we can see, which is still obviously going on is, is that us, all those domestic political conflicts around Trump are, are getting entangled with the Ukraine funding question. Yeah. But in complicated ways, isn't it? Because we now think of Trump as a threat to Ukrainian independence, which he evidently is. But at the time he begins as a more hawkish supporter of Ukrainian military resistance. And then it's and then you start to get this entanglement as you've just described it. And again, the other, as you say, the Zelensky coming to power in 2019 as the peace candidate, the Russian speaking candidate from the east, who is who Pedro Poroshenko tries to paint as, you know, soft and a return to that kind of more Russia f- friendly or Russia focused candidate. Um, but he he's an anti-corruption candidate. But I think what has also changed at this time, from my understanding, my reading of, of um, this period of history, is that by 2019, Ukraine has formed into more of a nation state than it was in 2014, when it was much more divided between East and West. Because as you say, Zelensky wins a landslide and he wins in every region apart from one, which is completely different to the political map in 2014, which had been uh, divided in half between East and West. He's he's as a anti-corruption candidate. And so things are starting to shift both in, in American politics, in European politics, but also in Ukraine, which I think is then going to be really important for the war itself. Yeah, the other place I think where something changes in 2019, which does have consequences, is France hmm. and Macron. Again, I think we've talked about this in a number of other episodes. It's that summer in 2019 that Macron starts making these speeches about how what Europe needs is a reset of relations with Russia. Hmm. And these speeches about the, in some sense, he sees it the necessary civilizational relationship almost between Europe and Russia. I think we talked about that in the the episode that we did with Hans Kanani. Yeah. And that becomes, again, a fairly lethal contradiction in all this. And I think that there's no point, I think, in which you can say that what the different parts of what 
shouldn't really be called the West in this respect because there's no unity to it. There's no way in which that they're cohering together. And then you've got these bits around Trump that are coming sort of left field and the ways in which what's going on in the conflicts in the American domestic political sphere is making any coherence even harder than it already was. And we've not even, we haven't really got time to it, we've left out of this, which we could have spent more time on, the fact that it's incredibly difficult for the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, to keep a steady flow of credit to Ukraine through a time that's still economically very difficult for it, because that's tied to the IMF making conditionality demands in terms of anti-corruption, and it's very difficult for even Zelensky to make the changes that the IMF required just because of the depth of the corruption problems in Ukraine. So you could, I think, look at the end of those months of the Trump presidency, like through like 2020 or the, the last year on it, and say, actually, that generally things look quite good from Putin's yes. oh, yeah. perspective. And that essentially that the direction of travel would look to be that Zelensky making effective concessions. Yeah, and we'll turn to that after the break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week from Unheard say so we've got to go back to the study of the past uh, with a very close eye on the evidence. I've come to the place where I don't actually think there's much value in arguing with people who have decided that the West is evil, whether they're woke leftist or whether they're woke rightist in this way. You know, I'm all for pointing out the things that the people in power don't want said, even if they mean they're uncomfortable for us as a country. The wokeification of the right operates in a slightly different way, where it's not about our society, it's about the elite. Just search Unheard wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. So the next episode that we want to talk about is 2020, the election in the United States that brings Joe Biden to power in January 2021. This is another shift. But it's also a really messy shift. You've obviously had January 6th and all of that that's happening in Washington. Uh, But you've also got uh, President Biden now caught up in the the drama of Trump's impeachment with these allegations about Hunter Biden and his involvement in, in Ukraine. So it's a real mess. But I think one thing that we can draw from President Biden's history, and we, we recorded an episode about this, or a couple of episodes about this, is that 
President Biden is much more a member of the kind of Washington blob that Obama is defining himself against and being proud of his achievements of standing up to the blob. President Biden is more interventionist. He's more of a sort of foreign policy establishment figure. He is more supportive, I think, of Ukraine than Obama was. He was more supportive in 2014. But then you have to contrast that with his overall strategy which is also to try to pull the United States out of some of its entanglements that it's been caught up in for so long. So you've got his attempt to try and pull back from Afghanistan, which will happen later in in 2021. So that is the sort of the bigger picture here. So how is that affecting the situation on the ground in Ukraine? I think the important thing to see about Biden's presidency are two things. Firstly, how quickly events start to change. So it's in March of 2021 that the first Russian military buildup on the Ukraine border starts. Right. And the second thing is that for Biden, the Ukraine question has another dimension, I think, around the pipelines, which is about America's relations with Europe and Germany in particular after the age of Trump. I mean, perhaps the age of Trump hasn't yet ended, but no. <laughs> in the, after the, let's just say after the Trump presidency. So it looks like it's pretty important for Biden to try to have a reset of EU relations and perhaps German relations in particular. Yes. And that, I think, is both driven by Trump, as I've said, but also by trying to get the Europeans on side about a more confrontational policy towards China, remembering that right at the end of 2020, so between the election and before Biden taking office, Macron and Merkel had struck that EU effectively on a bilateral basis, even though it was an EU agreement with China, the investment Mm -hmm. agreement, kind of like signaling to Biden before he took office, we're our own player on China. So I think there's a sense in which Biden sort of effectively says to the Germans, okay, I'll give you a reset on the pipelines. So in May 2021, the sanctions on Nord Stream are taken off by Biden. And I expect you to play ball, so to speak, over China. Now, I don't think that playing ball over China really occurs, even though the investment agreement is not going to be ratified by the European Parliament. But I think there's kind of like a parallel track, if you like, from this point on through 2021 is that on the one hand, Russia is mounting a lot more pressure on Ukraine and Biden's trying to carve a way of using the Ukraine issue in one aspect, but only really in one aspect to try to improve relations with Germany. And at a certain point, they're going to come crashing into each other. I mean, listening to that narrative, Helen, I I can't help but think Biden's policy seems somewhat naive. You know, I'm not sure what he's got from Germany and France by taking off the sanctions on Nord Stream. I'm not sure what any US president has got from its pressure going back decades to get the Europeans to increase their defence spending and the like. There, There is some evidence that a sort of more blunt approach that Trump was taking towards Europe, including Britain, which had been bullied, as we've discussed in previous episodes, had been bullied into changing its position on Huawei and its relations with China, was working. So again, there's such a tension when trying to understand US policy 
on Ukraine, when you look at it today, and then you think back through the, the Biden, Trump, and then Obama presidencies, that it's not that the Democrats are clearly more supportive of, of Ukrainian independence and are much more, uh, have a kind of more moral foreign policy towards it. There's a lot of moving parts here and, and contradictions. And it's quite hard to see like the through line here. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think there is another way you can look at it as well, which is that Biden administration has a reasonable sense, certainly I would say by halfway through 2021, that things are changing in Ukraine. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not like the military buildup from March is going unnoticed. And I think that the message to the Germans over Nord Stream is in part, look, we'll take the sanctions off you because that's irresponsible Trumpism, if you yeah. like. But if things get really serious with this invasion, then you're going to have to pull back from Nord Stream. Yeah. And that is what ends up happening on that issue. So even before... Russia has invaded in February of 24th of 2022. I think it's two days before that, Olaf Scholz, who's by this point taken over from Merkel as German Chancellor, effectively has to suspend Nord Stream. So I think it's always a little bit conditional, but yeah. I think at the same time, it, it's sending a, a very odd message to Ukraine. And this goes back to this yes. question of yeah. like, how, if you look at it from Ukraine's point of view, the government in Kiev's point of, of view, do the different things that Western states are doing add up into any kind of coherent protection for Ukraine's independence. Because even if you can kind of like find some like rationale, we'll give the Germans a bit because we need to, because Trump treated them so badly, so to speak, yeah. is that that still sends a signal to Ukraine that they're not as serious about the financial implications of Ukraine being cut out of the yeah. transit system as Trump had been. On the other hand, if you look at the actual military aid commitments or the general aid but the military commitment in particular in terms of arms that has been provided through 2021 you can actually see that it's more significant under biden than it had been under trump so there's i think 60 million improved in the senate or in congress i should say in september of 2021 and then in December, so this is before the actual invasion, but mm -hmm. when a second military buildup has taken place, then Biden approves a 200 million shipment of arms. You think about those numbers, Ukraine. though, compared to today. I know. And we're talking about what, what's, what's the Senate is talking about? Is it 80 billion? Yeah. Just extraordinary to think back. And it's not, not very long ago. But I mean, talking about the signals that this incoherent Western policy is sending to Ukraine. Well, they're obviously also being sent to Russia. And what is Putin making of all of this? And this kind of, you know, on off uh, signals about Nord Stream and Germany and transit fees through uh, Ukraine and Ukraine's importance to the West and how much we're willing to support uh, an independent Ukraine in keeping its independence or, or, try, or establishing its independence, really, because I don't think it's ever been properly independent since independence in, in 91. That's one of the lessons I think that I've I've sort of drawn out from this history. And you see then that Putin seems to be ramping up the pressure with the with its military build up on the border. And this seems to be this seems to be on off in 2021. So it's, it's built up earlier in the year, then with the, then withdrawn and then built up again. And it's a kind of blackmail attempt on Ukraine. I think that's right. And another piece, I think we should bring into the picture is what happens in between September and November. So I think there's a meeting between 
Biden and Zelensky in September of 2021. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, a declaration in November of 2021. So this is pretty much after the second military buildup has started of what's called the US-Ukraine Charter on Security. And what's notable about that is that whilst it's rhetorically completely committed to the Minx 2 process, it also says... And I think this is stronger than anything that's been there since the annexation. So to quote the Charter, the United States does not and will never recognise Russia's attempted annexation of Crimea. So that's quite a strong statement, given that really nothing's been done in terms of yeah. engaging with the Crimea question since 2014. I think the context of it is the military um, build-up. But this is another, I think, shift yep. in American policy, whether it's joined up with the apparent still Franco-German commitment to Minx 2 is another matter. Yeah, the Americans have led the Germans and the French lead on the diplomatic negotiations. They've let the European Union push ahead with an association agreement without the ability to defend that ag agreement. And now they're coming in and saying that they, they will never, ever accept Crimea. So the, again, I'm struck by the incoherence of it all. And then you then get this moment in December 2021, where Putin publishes an ultimatum to the West, effectively. Uh, so he, he's built up the troops on the border. And then this is his ultimatum to stop the war. And it's, it's not Minsk anymore. This is an extraordinary moment, because Putin asks for a written commitment for no more NATO expansion, so effectively never to have Ukraine in NATO, to remove NATO troops from Poland and the Baltic states, to withdraw the American nuclear weapons or nuclear presence from Europe entirely, and a commitment from NATO that Ukraine will never be allowed to join. I mean, that is Putin effectively saying, you're not committed to this, to Ukraine, and I want to go back to... I want to wind the clock back all the way to 1991, effectively. You've got to back all the way off. I mean, the, the reality is but America is never going to accept that. NATO is never going to accept that. But that then is the frame for the war that happens two months later in February. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we can see is, is that it's very, very hollow, these things that Putin says about NATO. I mean, I think he's made it very clear in all kinds of ways that his problem with regard to Ukraine is nothing really to do with NATO. It's to do with the fact it doesn't accept the legitimacy of the Ukrainian nation state. He never has mm -hmm. um, done. And he regarded the events as they had transpired, as we've been talking about them, as an opportunity, perhaps that hadn't existed before, mm -hmm. to try to do something about that on a much grander, bigger scale than he tried in 2014. And I think what's then interesting is the way in which the United States in particular responds to that. Because you could say that the story that we've been telling is sort of make some effort to try to deter mm -hmm. Russia, but actually doing nowhere near enough yeah. to deter Russia. So deterrence, not least training the Ukrainian army, has failed. Mm -hmm. So what then does the United States and the European Union do? I think in the case of the French and Germans within the European Union, what happens is just on the 24th of February of 2022, it's just a, a big psychological shock because mm -hmm. it's the whole notion in which you could take peace for granted 
in Europe, which I think have been particularly important in the German mindset, just shattered in a day or night. But then on the American side, Biden's initial reaction on the American side, Biden could actually sound like Obama in his Atlantic interview. But by the time we get to the spring, and they see that actually Ukrainian army can put up a great deal of resistance, mm-hmm. certainly in defending the capital. Uh, and that uh, Putin has had to back away from regime change. Suddenly this looks in Washington like an opportunity for delivering a really big strategic blow to yes. Russia. And then the amount of military aid that is going to Ukraine, not just from the United States, but particularly from the United States, goes up massively. And that's where these large sums of money that we're now talking about have come from. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's Lieutenant General Valery Zeluzhny, who is the is in charge of the Ukrainian resistance, the guy who Zelensky has just fired as the head of the army. And what you were saying right at the start, Helen, about the lack of Ukrainian resistance in Crimea and the fact that these forces, Ukrainian soldiers, had defected to Russia and many of them had served in the Soviet army. Zeluzhny is interesting because he has never served a day in the Soviet army. So he is one of the new breed of Ukrainian generals trained on NATO standards uh, and, and, and Western standards and doesn't have that kind of connection, that emotional connection to the old regime. So I think that gives you a sense of what's going on as well. And you can understand from a Western perspective, if you have decided... Based on what's happened before, remember, go back to 2014 and Ukraine's failure to stand up to the Russian army when, when Russia has intervened to try and tip the balance in the Donbass. And that's led to Minsk 1 and Minsk 2. The failures there, you think, well, Ukraine is likely to fail again. So if we send equipment to Ukraine, it's very quickly likely to end up in Russian control. So we can't do that. And as you say, what changes is Ukraine's defense led by Zeluzhny and Zelensky and that changes everything and I think this idea of inflicting a strategic defeat on Russia I mean I heard it in a lots of conversations with analysts in in the US and here in Europe that this is something that they we and I think still to some extent believe might be possible that Russia will emerge from this incredibly weakened and that looked like it was going to be the story in 2022 you know its army was going to be defeated uh, it was going to lose its attempt to establish this Eurasian uh, union, which is at the heart of Putin's vision, effectively to reestablish a kind of union state between Russia, Ukraine, Belarus uh, and its old Soviet republics uh, to the east. It was going to lose all of this and the West was going to emerge stronger. And that kind of was the story in 2022. For, for a lot of it, you had uh, NATO expansion. Even earlier in the first part of like 2023. I think the thing that's changed is the failure of the Ukrainian counteroffensive yeah. this year. So the, the summer offensive, so what happened militarily mm-hmm. between June and September, October. And I think that's the context in which on the issue of providing ongoing military aid to Ukraine, that's the moment that we're still in. So we're recording this episode early this week. Um, so it's only Wednesday the, the 14th. We usually record on a Monday. And so we don't know for sure what's the fate of the bill that's been passed by the US Senate, $80 billion worth of, 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 of military aid is going to be in the House of Representatives. But as we speak, mm-hmm. the Speaker of the House of Representatives Mike Johnson has said that he's not prepared to have a vote 
yep. in the House of Representatives on that bill because the Ukraine funding, as for Israel too, it had been detached from the border issue. And that was the play we've talked about mm-hmm. this on a number of occasions. That was the play that the Republicans in Congress, including some big-time supporters of Ukraine in the US Senate, like Mitt Romney, had made in the autumn. Mm-hmm. And I think that to understand how it came to be the case, that even that could be debated with on that side of the, so the non-Trump side of the Republican Party, is has to come in the context of the fact, not only that the opportunity for a strategic blow against Russia looked like it was passed, mm-hmm. but that Ukraine was like, militarily struggling. On land, we should say that actually in terms of attacking in the Black Sea, that Ukraine's actually been quite successful for the the last few months. But I think what we can see, isn't it, Tom, is is that now in this new space of the interaction between the geopolitics and American domestic politics, that it's very much like bound up with Trump, the US presidential election Mm -hmm. in November, and that it's going to be very difficult to get these issues disentangled again so that now funding for ukraine in the u.s is a contested partisan issue and it's partisan within the republican party as well as just between the republicans and the democrats yeah and i mean because i think part of this struggle in congress is to try and pass a bill that is almost trump proof that it that it it keeps ukraine in the fight beyond Trump's elect potential election in November. So it keeps it going for another year or so beyond beyond that. And so it keep it keeps it in the fight. But that obviously then you know raises the question, well what happens then? And and so it's that that Trump election can change everything because then it imposes upon Europe a problem of what do you do about Ukraine uh, when that U.S. military aid starts to to run out, are you going to step up and start funding more uh, uh, than than you currently are? Because I think the Europe, European Union has agreed something like fifty billion over three years. Over three years, and the British aid package is something like two and a half billion. I think the latest one was. So you know, this is the ongoing fight without the U.S. is kind of unthinkable, and so it poses a question: What, what is going to happen here? So Ukraine right now is effectively divided. Russia has control of the east and the land corridor to uh, the Crimea, but it doesn't. It hasn't managed to continue that and take control of the of all of the coast to Odessa and beyond to Moldova. But it's taken control up to the Dnieper River. And so, how can a Ukraine that looks like that? survive as an independent state what is its future and what is its relations with europe and how how could it it can't get into nato because it's divided and there is a frozen conflict so if it was to come into nato nato would immediately be at war with russia which is effectively it said it's not going to it's not going to do and then what does it do about membership of the european union going all the way back to this question in 2014 well as we know as we said at the when we're setting things up in the first episode formal Accession negotiations are underway Mm -hmm. for the Ukraine's membership of the European Union. Now, they will obviously, even leaving the military issue aside, take many years, not least because it's actually pretty difficult for member states, even ones significantly richer than Ukraine is, to deal with all the economic requirements Mm -hmm. of joining um, the European um, Union. And the question of who is going to fund Ukraine's economic 
reconstruction is obviously pretty central in terms of how the European Union can deal with the Ukraine question like going forward. But I think there's something else that's come out, particularly of the last month or so, perhaps, which is that the question of Ukraine's relationship to NATO is in a way become a microcosm of what many other European states' relationship to NATO is, particularly in a context of a possible Trump presidency. So, you know, we've been talking about the way in which EU membership questions and NATO questions weren't lined up and didn't take actually account of like the hard geopolitical realities around Russian power in the post-Soviet Europe. Um, but you could also just turn that into a, a thesis about how Europe as a whole continent mm-hmm. hasn't got to grips with what post-Soviet Europe means. What happened when Russia was no longer an economically very enfeebled state in the 1990s when it wasn't led by somebody who was willing to, in some sense, have a its own effective external support structure for the Russian state built around a relationship with the IMF in particular and mm-hmm. the United States. What happens when that isn't what Russia is? And that's not what Russia's been under Putin, that Russia is a geopolitical power with, as we know, revisionist attitudes towards a number of its borders. And if you take Ukraine into like a frozen conflict where sort of like where it it basically is now, then there is a question about, I think, like what comes next? Where does that leave Poland for instance, particularly I would say the states that have got borders um, with Ukraine, which also matters in terms of the European Union question, because as we've, I think, also mentioned before in in an earlier episode, you've got a great deal of unhappiness from Polish farmers and Polish truckers about what the economic consequences of the war have been in terms of a lot more Ukrainian trade coming across land rather than out through the sea. Though Ukraine is getting to the point where its sea trade is reaching close to sea pre-war levels uh, again. But I still think that the whole set of questions around like, well, how do you deal with not just Ukraine in economic terms and security terms, but how do you deal for Europe in security Mm -hmm. terms when NATO can't be taken for granted any longer is a big question. And it's particularly obviously consequential in the states that were once part of the Soviet Union, the Baltic states, where even in the last month or so, I think that Latvia has reintroduced conscription. Right. Well, and and, and Poland has gone up to something like four and a half percent of GDP is spent on defence, so that they are becoming one of Europe's primary military powers, sort of quietly. Four and a half percent of a much bigger economy than it used to be is a sizable chunk. I mean, Britain is talking about having to get to 3%, but it's very difficult to see the politics in which that is possible. And then thinking about Germany and France, but Germany in particular, whose economy is struggling, who's seen Nord Stream 2 blown up during this war, is Germany going to be prepared to pay the bill necessary to bring Ukraine into the European Union? I wouldn't be confident at all if I was a Ukrainian thinking about that. I mean, and that has been how the European Union has expanded. I mean, going all going all the way back, 
1990 again and thinking about this question this is what this is the settlement that you know germany will pay in large regard for for expansion and so i just don't know i mean it, ukraine is so poor and so corrupt and now so destroyed will there be the political will the democratic will in western europe to pay for it um, and then i don't know what you do about nato but i think that the question in a way is even harder than that because I think the answer is, is there probably won't be. But the Ukraine question isn't going to go away on any of these fronts just because there isn't, yes, to yes, use yeah. what you just said, a democratic political will to to deal with it. That the, the, the history of the last 30 years is not going to be undone. Ukrainian nationhood, the idea that the Ukrainians are a nation or a, a people and that they have a a state in one way that is a much stronger yeah. than it's been at any point in the history of independence that we've been talked Absolutely, about. It's wars yeah. that make nation states, and actually, it's often even wars that aren't necessarily won. I mean, think back to the impact um, of the Napoleonic Wars on the idea of there being a German nation mm-hmm. might be won. Um, example is that there is a sense I think in which in the 1990s the reason why not just Bush but European politicians like Thatcher and Cole weren't that keen on Ukrainian independence was because they didn't want to have to think about what it really meant to have independent states between Russia and Germany again that just seemed like history returning in Mm -hmm. a like a really like nightmarish like (laughs) way if you look at the ways in which those territorial borders have been contested often like catastrophically in terms of like human suffering but there's no way back to the way the world was before december 1991 ukrainian nation state is it can be militarily defeated it can be economically very weak it can be incredibly difficult to see how it can join the european union with any alacrity but it is now part of Europe's politics. That's really interesting because you think back to Bush and to Cole and to Thatcher effectively saying, no, don't, you're not independent. And a, and a Ukrainian nationhood not quite existing properly. It's certainly not in, it felt in the depth and the breadth that it is today. But actually they couldn't do anything about it because Ukraine decided to declare independence and voted for it and voted for it across every region of Ukraine, including in Crimea. And so they had to deal with it. And effectively, that's the same thing that's happening today. It is. And I think you could push that thought a little bit further, Tom, and say, like, how did that sequence of events that we began with from the moment when Bush went to the Ukrainian Soviet parliament and warned against suicidal nationalism as he saw it running through the coup against Mm -hmm. Gorbachev the way in which Yeltsin then effectively took control of what was still the Soviet government, but doing so from like Russia. Is the reason why it didn't turn out the way in which Bush, Thatcher and Cole wanted was because of the way in which Yeltsin acted. So the way in which the Russian president acted through the events of August of 1991. And, it's a, and I think at the core of a lot of this is the inability to reckon with what Russian power Means that doesn't mean to say that Russian power is always strong. Quite the contrary. Yeah, I mean, really, and it doesn't mean to say that Russia can project military power successfully. Even again, quite the contrary. And even with all the problems that we've been talking about for Ukraine, I think it is important to see that 
Russia has been pushed back effectively in the Black Sea out of Sevastopol, not on land, but on the sea into, mm -hmm. because of the ability that Ukraine has to use Western supplied long range missiles to attack Soviet naval warships, the Black Sea. But this is a question of like, what do you do about a Russia that has had a pretty complicated war from its point of view? That is, again, an existential question yeah, for well, Europe. As you say, it's not just about strength when we're analysing these geopolitical questions. Actually, the more interesting question might be about the weakness of all of these places. So Russia is not necessary, is not strong enough to impose its will on Ukraine, which has become an ever stronger nation. Europe is not uh, strong enough to bring Ukraine in. And the Americans don't seem strong enough to be able to decisively take on Russia and bring Ukraine into the West either. So there is a kind of Ukraine is it at, at this point, the sort of the bit in those overlapping circles of all of these various powers. Um, and also in the US domestic political conflict, I would say as well. So, I mean, the, the, the point is we're basically here forever. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, uh, on that note, I hope you enjoyed the two episodes now that we've done on Ukraine. I mean, we're evidently going to have to keep coming back to Ukraine. Please do, as ever, follow us and give us a rating or wherever you get your podcast because it really helps us. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. And as ever, this podcast was produced by Ewan Daughtry. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.